Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we are here as usual to navigate you through the intricacies of information technology and all things Mount West Community and Technical College. Today we are back from spring break. It was definitely not long enough, but uh, we have a couple of uh, quick announcements and then we're going to have a lot of great news stories to talk about as well as an interview with Annalisha Johnson, one of our adjunct faculty members here who's been teaching a lot of our graphic design courses. So first couple announcements, um, some redundant ones, but also some things for the future. Monday, March 26th, which is the day all of our students get back from spring break, is also the first day for advanced registration for summer courses. So if any student wants to be taking any summer courses and you're worried about not being able to get into those courses, you better start registering within that first week. Because the first week, from the 26th all the way to April 2nd, advanced registration means it's just for people who were already enrolled. So at that point right there, uh, you're a card-carrying member. You get to register before everybody else. Advanced. If you wait till April 2nd, which is the following Monday, that's when everybody can register. That means if someone off the street decides they want to start attending Mount West this fall and they want to go ahead and get a leg up on their classes and start taking a class this summer, as long as they get admitted, they'll be able to take your seat from you in that class. So do make sure you take advantage of the first week of advanced registration to secure your seat and your place for your classes before someone comes in and and possibly takes it away. Now, the other announcement I have is really to give somebody an idea about the summer classes. 99% of the summer classes are going to be done online this particular summer because we are currently uh, in a state of transition from our home here on Marshall University's campus in Huntington, West Virginia, to 5th Street Hill, uh, to the old Arch Coal Building, We're moving to our new building off campus uh, since all the community colleges have been separated from the universities um, by the legislature back in 2003, I think. So because most of them are online, let me go ahead and give you an idea of the three different sessions we have. Session Summer A is is one that runs the longest. Looks to me to be an eight-week session. Now, I would say that if I was going to be taking a class to be honest, I probably would be more inclined to go with an eight-week session. I wouldn't want to have to cram too much stuff in. So the Summer A session runs May 14th to July 20th. Just to give you an idea, classes will be over May 8th. So you're going to have about a week off between spring semester and the start of Summer Session A. So Summer Session A runs May 14th through July 20th. That would still give you at least a month off before fall semester begins. But from summer session A, if you want to get your stuff done a little bit quicker, self-contained inside of there are two smaller four-week sessions. There's one called Summer B, and Summer B starts on the same date, May 14th, but it ends June 15th. That's actually the session in which I'm teaching one of my courses, the... um, IT 293 networking practicum course and then there's the other option which is summer C which continues June 18th through July 20th 
So it may not be uncommon for you as a student to say, I don't want to juggle more than two classes at a time. So you could decide to schedule a class that spans the entire summer break. And then you could also schedule one that, that spans the first four weeks and one that spans the second four weeks. So you could actually accomplish taking three courses, but never taking more than two at a time. Mm. Just realize that some of them will be more, more advanced. For example, the four-week courses are going to probably meet four times a week because traditionally a six-weeks course meets three hours a week. Just make sure you're aware that when you take a four-week course, you're going to be meeting 12 hours a week. You have to be able to have the same amount of content uh, in those times. So, And as usual, if you'd like more information on this, you are more than welcome to visit our website at www.mctc.edu. And off of the top menu, I believe it's actually under um, academics. Yes, you'll find the academic calendar. Uh, and if you have any additional questions, you're always more than welcome to go ahead and send us any feedback on our Twitter account, which is TalkOnTechMCTC. So that's my little uh, introductory announcements. You're going to be hearing about the summer classes for the foreseeable future until we reach that time. So um, you'll get very bored of hearing about it. But we have a lot of uh, stories to get us started today, and I'm going to go ahead and kick it off first. We, um, we haven't spoken very highly of Google recently. Oh, I mean, not out, of, not out of preference. I love Google, but Google hasn't had a lot of good press recently in the nope. news. Um, there is a very excellent Gizmodo article, which I'll be posting, called The Case Against Google. And whether, whether you find the story to be a biased story or you find it to be completely truthful... I have to say that I'm very, very impressed with the level of writing and actually the reporting in it. Uh, it talks about the fact that what's the problem with Google right now? If, if we think they're trying to do things that are evil, if they're going to head and um, if they're violating our privacy, why are they violating our privacy? And it comes down to the fact that Google now, these days, is just not Google.com. It's not a search engine. Even though the Oxford English Dictionary has now coined the word Googling as basically to search for, even though it's now part of, of our vernacular, even though I know of um, family members who when they want to go to websites like Facebook, mm -hmm. they literally open up the Google, Google. search engine yep. and type in www.facebook.com. They type that in the Google search engine. When in fact, if they type it in the address bar, they get there. Yeah. Even though Google search has become um, a, a mainstay in our lives, Google doesn't make money very much off of that. Another problem these days is that if I want to ask an intelligent question to Google, which is what everybody wants now, everybody wants personalized searching. If I want to say, Google, uh, I'm driving from Huntington to Charleston, West Virginia, please tell me the, the top five restaurants between here and Charleston. That's a hard question that Google right now can't answer because Google doesn't know anything about my preferences, knows nothing about uh, what I like to eat. It, it can't because that type of information I'm probably putting on Facebook, mm -hmm. which is something that Google doesn't have access to get to. On the other hand, doesn't even know if I'm driving with a couple of my friends. And on the same token, it doesn't know what my friends, um, 
what my friends' tastes are either. It may not even know my location from something like Foursquare or something mm-hmm. like that if I haven't given it rights to find out my location. So ultimately right now the problem is Google would love to be able to give you excellent search results. I mean, it would love to be able to tell you about restaurants that um, you may like based on your friends, like the the program, the app Yelp, okay. does yeah. a really good job with that. But it can't do that because that's all information that's not web-based. Well, it's web-based, but it can't be crawled by Google's bots. And so Google's trying to then find a way to get that information for you. That's why it's now pushing down everyone's throat Google Plus and Google Maps and all the different services. Yeah, so it's trying its best to go ahead and give you that newer, up-to-date, personalized search results. But it can't very well do that if it doesn't invade your privacy to find out what you like. It's very hard for Google to give you an educated guess as to what you'd like to eat if it knows absolutely nothing about you. Exactly. So the article just talks about the fact how it's trying to crack that code and trying to go ahead and get people to get into and collect that information about where they want to go and what they want to do. And so some of that is collecting information about which YouTube videos I watch on, on YouTube to be able to serve me up additional web pages that I might find interesting. Mm-hmm. It's using Google Plus to, to data mine that information. All that stuff is what we have to look at that Google's trying to do. Because if not, it's not going to be able to compete. It's going to go the way of the dinosaurs, which is yep. really weird because it seems like it's so prolific right now. But that's only because everyone sees the search side to be so prolific. And so this article also points out at the bottom a lot of, of interesting evil things supposedly Google's <laughs> done. Because they make a case in here, is Google really being evil, or are we just giving them a hard time about it? So it points out some of the areas that they think have been um, small but telling examples of the trickery they think Google's done. So they point out the Safari exploit we've talked about previously. Um, They also talk about how Google began promoting their own products in search over more obviously relevant ones. For example... um, if you were searching for somebody and you know they're on Facebook and Google would go to show you the information on Facebook, instead they might put that person's Google Plus profile higher in the list saying that it's more relevant. It may not be more relevant. There may not even be as much information on it. It's just a Google product. They also talked about um, Google's increase the amount of ads they put on their results probably to make sure they can make some money because they may be having a hard time. There's also a mention here of an article where Google falsely claimed they could not effectively index and rank Twitter. Because they talk in the article that at one point, Google and Twitter were going to have a partnership. Yeah. I think they were even looking at possibly one person was going to buy the other person. And that fell through for some reason. And so it kind of seems like that Google, when that fell through, was like, you know what? Um, we, we, don't, we, can't, we can't archive them. It's like they're not <laughs> our friend anymore. We're not going to archive them. We're not going to go ahead and rank them at all. It is even mentioned that Google illegally accepts ads for Canadian pharmacies with the purpose of delivering the to American users. So I guess the idea is somebody in Canada has been selling pharmaceutical ads to Google. Google doesn't go ahead and put anything in the stipulations that says we shouldn't present these ads to American American consumers. Yeah. Because the whole idea is you're supposed to buy your pharmaceuticals here in the U.S. So... Google inadvertently did that. Now, some may say, is that really their job to police the Internet? They did it for China. 
Yep. There's, there's a lot of things they blocked for China so that China would go ahead and utilize Google.com exactly. for search. And the last one was, which was one that, that I would, I didn't even know about, and I thought it was pretty uh, blatant fraud, so I decided to go ahead and investigate, was one here that said, Google seems to have committed overt fraud in Kenya. So I'm not going to necessarily link that article up, but it is here in the Gizmodo article, and I'll just give you a brief overview of what that's about. I found it very interesting. In Kenya, um, I guess they're not... In Africa, they don't really have phone books. Or if they do, they don't have phone books that have white pages and yellow pages. They're just maybe just uh, residential areas. So there's this website over there called Mocality. And Mocality's job was to go ahead and crowdsource, which is something we talked about previously, kind of everybody joining together and going ahead and creating a website, almost like Wikipedia. They crowdsource their own business directory. So that if you wanted your business listed, all you had to do was call them or get a hold of them and you could add it in there. Or if you really, really liked a business that wasn't mentioned, you could add it in there yourself. So they now have, for Kenya, all these different uh, businesses in their directory. What was very interesting is this company, Mocality, started getting calls from people asking about the premium service that them and Google were offering together for ad space. And Mocality had no clue what they were talking about. And so what they decided to do is they decided to look at their records and say, okay, this is client A. Client A is telling us about some some premium service we're offering. Let's check and see who's tried to access client A's records. And they started seeing that all these clients that were calling them, asking about this supposed service, all had had hits to their data records that okay. were on their website from from a particular IP address range. So they laid a trap. They went ahead and went out there and said, if for some reason an Internet user from this IP address range goes to request information about another company, let's go ahead and put our own telephone number in there. They laid the trap. The IP address range looked for another business, and what they did was they they served them up their actual telephone number. Someone at Mocality answered the phone as if they were a normal business user, not themselves, and supposedly they were talking to a Google employee wanting to sell them on the joint venture between Google and Mocality, asking this person to pay Google for a Kenya business online website with their own domain, which is a service Mocality was already offering. Hmm. So basically the the um, allegation is that Google was trying to use their own database to steal away their customers because the oh, whole idea okay. was they wanted to build – this Kenyan company wanted to build their own company of of businesses mm-hmm. and then from there in that database look in there and call them and say, hey, would you also like us to make you a website to go along with your business so people can know about your products more than just a telephone number. Okay. So they thought that was very odd. They thought maybe that was just some um, right-wing person, just nut job working there, would get fired, that type of thing. They mentioned it to Google. Supposedly it went away. They thought everything would yeah. be great. A couple weeks later, they started noticing other batches of an IP range being requested. This time, the IP range was actually from Google's Mountain View or Mountain View headquarters. In this case, they also set up another sting. <laughs> Once again, they also reached another Google employee who was still trying to sell information. So at this point, it was hard to escape the idea that Google was not somehow involved, whether the people there or not. There was a concentrated effort 
to do different IP addresses, but to still get the same information. And I mean, I found that really crazy. The craziest thing I found out about it was it's not like this happened last week. Yeah, this happened January thirteenth. And there's been no, and nothing I'd, about it. I had I'd never heard about it whatsoever. No. Now this website, the website with this link, which is uh, boingboing.net. Even down at the bottom, they have three updates. They had contacted Google. They'd also contacted uh, the Modality uh, CEO as well. Google said they were mortified to learn that a team of people working for them had improperly used Mocality's data and misrepresented their relationship with them. I mean, to say improperly, I don't think improperly is a harsh enough um, um, adjective to explain how they used it. Yeah. I think fraudulently would That's, be a lot better. Yeah, definitely. And Blatant so, I, I mean, I think I think Google was looking for some money there. So even though I've, I've read a lot of comments at the bottom of the Gizmodo article that a lot of people say, you know, I love Google. I don't mind giving them my information. You're just writing a biased article. No matter what you think, I have to say this person at least looked up their facts. They yep. have links to their articles. They're not like Wikipedia. Citations are not needed. They actually have links to back up what they're saying. Yeah. And it's a very interesting article about how Google is moving from being a search engine to marketing and selling Google as a brand themselves and how they have to do that to stay alive because really search or simplistic search is dead. Yeah. So but that's, that's my first one, sir. Okay. Um, I got one here that's on... Um it's been around the block a few times, this uh, story dealing with uh, Facebook. And apparently um, a lot of new employees or em- employees um, or job applicants, people trying to get new jobs, mm-hmm. um, because Facebook has become so popular with, with people and then just their general lives and whatnot, there are some employers out there that are asking their employees and their job applicants for their Facebook passwords if they find out that they have fa- Facebook. Hmm. And and Facebook's coming out, and it, this these are articles on CNN, USA Today, everything. And Facebook's coming straight out and says, "Listen, you you do that, and you're asking for a possible lawsuit from us as well as other organizations." Are you saying they're going to sue the users? It, they can sue the user because oh. um, what they're saying here is. Um, uh, this practice undermines the privacy expectations and the security of both the user and the user's friends. So it's mm. not just that you're giving up your information. You're giving the employer access to the friends that you have, any of the organizations that you're part of, things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it also potentially exposes the employer who seeks this access to un- unanticipated legal liability. Um, <clears throat> it says... Um, also says we don't think it's the right thing to do, but it also may cause problems for the employers that they are not anticipating. For example, if an employer sees on Facebook that someone is a member of a protected group, um, they've got an example here like listed over a certain age. So let's just say you're 55 or older. You're part of a group that's, you know, male is 55 or older, Mm -hmm. that the employer may open themselves up to claims of discrimination if they don't hire that person. So if you're an older person, for example, and you're applying for a job and they say, okay, we see that you have Facebook or you have Facebook, give us your password. We want to go in. And you're a part of this certain group. Even if, even if that's not the reasoning behind you not getting the job, you as the person that they uh, have access to right. can sue them saying, oh, you're just not hiring me because I'm, I'm of this age, which is uh, discrimination. 
Um, and now the ACLU has gotten involved, um, American Civil Liberties Union, in case you don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting multiple reports where people are asking for, employers are asking for passwords of current employees wow. and of, of new hirees um, applying for jobs. I I'd never, I mean, this is the first I've heard of that because I've never heard of that practice. Um, MCTC mm-hmm. does does not make us do that or anything, but I could see where if you if you were my friend on Facebook, Josh, and you had set your privacy settings to where only your friends should be able to view your profile, exactly. and then I give my password to my business, my the business I work for, the company mm-hmm. I work for, or potentially I'm going to work for is not your friend and you tried to block everybody else out they shouldn't exactly. be able to see it so i could i could see that i have a hard time understanding the the fact that they could be sued i mean i i've never sat on the other side of the table to do a lot of interviews with people but i guess the assumption is when they bring in a resume that's all you have to go on mm-hmm. and they'll put in the facts they want you to know about them yep. and the decision gets made based on that but if you give someone your facebook account suddenly you give them a much more detailed resume and then they could come back and try to say, well, maybe there was things that weren't flattering about me in there. And and I think you didn't hire me because of that, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. I've never, never really sat on that side of the table to know about that. But, um, yeah, I think, well, I think I'd be hard pressed to give anything like that up. Yeah. And it says, excuse me, it says right off the bat, um, it is completely against Facebook's terms of service that you agree to when you sign up to share your password to anyone. Um, especially someone that you don't even know, you're not even technically working for yet, you have no um, legal or anything bindings to, as soon as you give up that password, you are already breaking the terms of service. That's why they're saying that you could possibly get sued along with the employer. Um, And it's their high, um, it's their security chief that has been getting all of this information gathered up and they're getting a lot of reports, and they said if it continues, if, if employers continue to do this, that they are going to go to court um, and and battle, you know, for the users and against the uh, against the employers. Um, it says, um, she's quoted as saying, you will not share your password, let anyone else access your account, or do anything else that might jeopardize the, the security of your account. Uh, that's straight from the agreement. So when you're sharing, mm. when you're giving them your password, you're breaking that terms of service, which leaves you open for liability as well. So, well, I I don't agree with the the particular practice in question, but I, I do know that like on the Microsoft side, if you need to explain or prove to someone that you have certifications, mm-hmm. short of giving them your account to log in and look at your MCP secure site, mm-hmm. you can you can create codes where they can view your transcript. Yeah. Maybe Facebook could create something like that to where yeah. you could create something, some sort of special password that says, even though you're not a Facebook user, this password grants you access to see a read-only copy of my okay. profile. Nothing else. I mean, yeah. I still, yeah, I still I mean, find that hard to believe. And this is this is from Facebook. Facebook's the one that's came out and they've, oh, yeah. they've, they've press released and said, listen, we've got too many reports of this. This has to stop. If it doesn't stop, we're we're going to start lawsuits because you know it's breaking all of our terms of service and you're jeopardizing other people's accounts, not just the person that you ha- you're getting access to mm-hmm. all of their friends on their friends list, anything like that. You're jeopardizing all of that private information. That's part of the privacy policy. So oh. I, I was not aware of that practice at all. I mean, I think Facebook's totally in, in the right though, because mm-hmm. 
you should be telling everybody not to give their password out. Yeah. Uh, a business of all people. The funny thing is, if they go to work for that business, the business probably then tells them, make sure you don't give our username and password for our company to anybody, mm-hmm. which is a little bit uh, double-sided, yeah. you know, double-sided yeah. standard there. And it, it says the ACLU has spoken out against it, too, once mm-hmm. Facebook came out, and they said that there are some states that are already considering taking legal action. Wow. So it must be... I'd be very interested to know which companies they're targeting mm-hmm. for that because I'm just I'm curious as to what the, what the profession is yeah. what the field is that's doing that and it must be that. a very very high number for them to come out and make this big of a deal about it yeah so wow that's that's very very interesting yeah. well my next one here that I've got is talking about um, malware which we all have to worry about about that actually I have two articles today that's going to be talking about some malware this one's a little bit interesting though because I know many times when I teach classes on digital certificates, I'm always talking in class about how you want to make sure you never lose that certificate. A digital certificate is what actually is utilized between you and Amazon, for example, when you go to buy some sort of product. There is uh, asymmetric cryptography being used. Well, it came out uh, the other day that Kapersky says, and Kapersky is a big antivirus company who, who has their own antivirus division, basically like Norton or Symantec. Kapersky came out and said that there's actually malware that's being put out into the wild, Josh, that's been signed with a stolen digital certificate. Mm. So the idea is we always teach our students, before you go to install that Flash player you just downloaded, double check and make sure it's signed with a certificate from Adobe. Yep. Because that you should be able to trust that. If someone shows you a certificate, you should be able to know it's legitimate software. Or you should be able to at least point the finger at them and say, you gave me buggy software. Mm-hmm. Well, here Kapersky is saying that it was actually Symantec who had a VeriSign digital certificate which was issued to a company called Conpavi, C-O-N-P-A-V-I, which, is a, which does uh, work for Swiss government agencies. This particular certificate somehow gotten stolen. It somehow has gotten used, let's put it that way. And mm-hmm. people have used it to digitally sign a malicious program called the Trojan Dropper Win32 MediES file. And it's a type of malware that's used to go ahead and attack a computer to where when that computer goes ahead and runs Google or Yahoo or Bing, when you do a search... They go ahead and take the search you'd normally have, and they append their own information. Because, for example, if you want to make a little bit of extra money on your website, you can put up ads for Google mm-hmm. or, or Amazon.com. And so the idea is if someone clicks through that banner ad for Amazon.com and goes to your website, up in the header, up there in all those different uh, get variables that get passed, your partner ID is there. They're trying to install this malware to where every time I go to buy something on Amazon without me knowing, they've gone ahead and added their partner ID. So they get paid per click when someone goes to Amazon through their site. And so it's it's not detrimental. Yeah. It's just them finding a way to make some money off of me going to a site already when I click it. But the interesting thing about it is people will probably look right past it and install it because it's got that uh, good certificate. What was it called again? Uh, the actual Trojan is called the uh, Dropper Win32 Medi Yes. That's you know what? M-E-D-I-Y-E-S. 
Y-E-S. I think I just took that off of a family member's computer. <laughs> like really? Like just the other day. They were, having I- some, they were having some other issues with the mm-hmm. computer, so I went through and was cleaning up some uh, temporary files and things like that for them. Mm-hmm. And Symantec is installed, and it was picking up three or four different um, three or four different bugs and, and backdoor right. things. And I clearly remember one of them call- being called Trojan Dropper Hmm. Uh, that that thing that you're saying there, yeah, and because I'd removed all the rest of them, and I couldn't tell what it was doing because it wasn't doing anything as far as like out of the ordinary. It wasn't taking over anything, but it wasn't going away, right? And so I went through and uh, using some Symantec's um, option there, they have a a remover tool now that you can get for free from their website, specifically targeted at that, and it will oh, remove cool. it from the computer. It just takes a couple seconds to do. And you always know it's a big, uh, it's a big outbreak if yeah. they made a removal. See, because I always thought I was going to have to try to look up and see where what the files were associated with and delete those, but um, they have their own really simple removal tool when it takes it off, and there wasn't any more problems. But yeah, they had that, and I would have never even known had it mm-hmm. not shown up in their um, quarantine. It did quarantine it. Wow. But. Um, you know that doesn't mean it was already wasn't already being used as far as already infected with the doing the Google and the, the Amazon stuff. But hmm. yeah, that's interesting because I just uh, just a few days ago um, had to remove that. So well, they say it's it's been seen since uh, December 2011 through March 7th, and uh, it's been infecting all kinds of of computers. They were saying here that just alone in uh, Western Europe, Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, those places in Western Europe. About 5,000 users had already had it, so I guess it's worked its way yeah. over here. Well, no, Malwarebytes picks it up, and mm-hmm. Symantec both will pick it up, and then you can use... Um, you can, I think you can actually Google it, mm-hmm. um, if even if it's already on your computer. Google right. it, and I think it'll take you to Symantec's site, and they have a removal tool that That's you can cool. use. So. Well, assuming that you've updated your definitions. Of course, of course yeah. 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 Always update your definitions. Well, I have another malware, uh, one talking about a new Mac OS X malware variant that's been spotted in the wild. Uh, This one's a little interesting trick that I thought about that they have being done here. Basically, this one plays off of the idea that um, on a Mac, by default, you typically don't see the extensions of files when they're saved if they're registered. The same thing happens in Windows. Like Windows 7, for example, uh, if you have Windows, um, Microsoft word installed mm-hmm. you won't see dot doc on the end of a windows doc file okay normally it's hidden well the idea is when you don't see the extension you don't really know what that is is it a zip file is it a doc file is it a pdf typically the picture is what gives it away what these inventive people have done is they've gone ahead and they've made the thumbnail of the file okay be a seductive picture like the cover of a maxim magazine or some uh, scantily clad uh, woman in a bikini or something like that so people think they're downloading a jpeg picture Mm -hmm. they go to double click on it but what really has happened is since the extensions hidden it's actually a dot app file oh wow so it will be like downloading what you think is a picture on windows but then finding out it's really an exe okay (laughs) you run the application it goes ahead and installs uh in this case it's called the imuller i-m-u-l-e-r trojan uh on a mac wow and it goes ahead and and does the installation that way or that way it's just once again more malware we have to deal with um and what it goes ahead and does is it takes screenshots of your, it searches for user data, 
It attempts to upload it to a server. It takes screenshots and sends them to the server. It creates a unique identifier for your specific Mac to be able to link that Mac and data it collects so they know where they got the data from. And <laughs> they've seen this malware is active as it connects to remote servers and downloads new executables. Wow. So once you go ahead and get this, you're probably also phoning home to get new updates that might oh, get around right. so it's detection. Just atta attaching onto it and mm -hmm. trying not to let go. Trying to go ahead and stay here, but huh. they've already uh, they've already got the files listed out there. So you know maybe if you see some scantily clad women's pictures, maybe you actually look before you click oh, yeah. uh, to make sure that it's not. If that's your thing, if you want to, if you want to <laughs> yeah. look at that, make sure it's actually a JPEG before you try to go ahead and open it, because that's new malware that's out there now on Mac OS X, and it's not lying. It's all Mac OS X users. Uh, really, they say the easiest way to get around that is to turn back on the feature that shows all file name extensions in order to differentiate a real image file from an application, okay. which I got to say, that's the very first thing I do on Windows as well. Yeah. The second I install Windows, I go to the control panel, go to the folders options, and uncheck the box that says hide my operating system yeah. files, and I also uncheck the box that says hide registered application extensions, So, because okay. I find that to be a pain in the butt. So. Okay. Um, I got another story here. It's mm -hmm. um, talking about the Government sues AT&T over internet calls. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this just came out yesterday. It says the Justice Department has sued to recover millions of dollars from AT&T, alleging the company improperly billed the government for services that are designed for use by the deaf and hard of hearing who place calls by typing messages over the internet. It says the system has been used by callers overseas who use it to defraud U.S. merchants by ordering goods with stolen credit cards and counterfeit checks. In response, the federal government ordered telecom companies to register their users. Uh, the Justice Department lawsuit said Dallas-based AT&T failed to adopt procedures to detect or prevent fraudulent users from registering. The government said the company feared its call volumes would drop once the fraudulent users were prevented from calling on the system. Um, the government reimbursed AT&T $1.30 per minute for every call on this system. So, uh, basically, the, the Justice Department's suing AT&T because mm -hmm. AT&T would not make their registers use, uh, wouldn't make their users register to use the service because they thought that their call volumes would drop, you know, dropping their overall numbers and affecting their business, um, so they didn't make them register. So, the Justice Department was paying all these millions of dollars for fraudulent calls being made under their um, system being used by deaf and hard of hearing people. Wow. Hmm. Um, uh, let's see. The, um, the department's action came as an intervention to take over a pr private whistleblower lawsuit that was filed in 2010 in federal court in Pittsburgh uh, by Constance Little, a former AT&T communications assistant in one of the company's call centers who made the original allegations about the improper billings. If the government is able to recover money as, the lawsuit, as a result of the lawsuit, uh, Little would receive a portion of it. Hmm. So it says the system is intended to help users who are hearing and speech impaired. Uh, we will pr pursue those who seek to gain by knowing, knowingly allowing use others, allowing others to abuse this program. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's a really crazy story when you're dealing with that. And then uh, the, the, they're talking about the FCC 
um, is aware of what's going on now, so that could come crashing down pretty hard on AT&T, especially with the federal government getting involved. So I thought that was an interesting story. Yeah, I think I think that's along the same lines. The other day I'd seen a story on Gizmodo where they said that the feds accused AT&T of using Nigerian scammers for profit. <laughs> they were using a program called IP Relay that reads text messages back to the recipient. And so I, I think that's... I think that's I, the I, same... I think that's interrelated yeah. to that, so... That's, that's that's very interesting. That's probably more information on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Seagate and I'm sure all other hard drive companies um, are always trying to push push the amount of storage we can have, so we don't have to have refrigerator size uh, computers in the future to to contain all of our petabytes of information. And Seagate just recently announced that they have been able to create technology that allows them to put one terabit of information per square inch on their platters. And so what that makes basically means is that's one trillion bits of information that can be put into a square inch. That superdense storage is what they call, is, is helpful and done based on what they call heat-assisted magnetic recording, which HAMR would be an excellent acronym for that. It's H-A-M-R. Oh, okay, yeah. And so it's a successor to their old-style perpendicular magnetic recording. So the whole point of this that I'm talking about here is just they're saying by the end of this decade, they should be able to double the storage capacities of today's current hard drives. And when we talk about hard drives, we're not necessarily talking about solid states. We're still talking about the old-fashioned platters that we can go ahead and use. That's going to be my first question. So assuming that they can get cheaper... Yeah. You know, although yeah. I did see just the other day, Newegg had uh, Seagate Barracuda one terabytes for ninety nine dollars. Oh wow! Which okay. it's not quite what it used to be because mm-hmm. I was getting it for like fifty eight bucks. Yeah, but it's at least broke the hundred dollar mark, so it's okay. getting back down there. But um, yeah, they also in their press release tried to be a little cute and say that um, they now compare themselves more favorably than the Milky Way because the Milky Way Galaxy has. Um, between 200 billion and 400 billion stars and now the amount of bits that they can now put in their hard drives are going to outnumber the amount of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. That's 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 quite cute. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got another one here talking about uh, Apple's latest plans. Um, you know, originally when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 97, um, they weren't doing so well. They actually had some money still in the bank. There's a lot of people that always that always say, you know, uh, Microsoft saved Apple. And I don't dispute Microsoft saved Apple, but when they say that Microsoft saved Apple because they let them borrow $250,000. Yeah. Um, I think it's just $250 million maybe. But, I was going to say, I think it's... But I was say, when they let them borrow that money, that wasn't, in my opinion, what saved Apple. It's the fact that they created um a long-term multi-year contract to start creating office back on mac and that was something that apple was sorely missing back then and so i think that part probably saved apple especially to to have a name like microsoft office back on the mac at the time but um ever since then when steve jobs took over they stopped giving out dividends to their stockholders because they said we need to keep on reinvesting money reinvesting money and that was way before they ever had the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone. Any of the eyes, right? Yeah, the I mean, series. yeah, but I mean, like that was back when they really needed to keep their money and reinvest. Mm-hmm. And so they have a lot more now. They have 
They have more money than God at yeah. this point. And so Apple has decided now, I don't know if it's because Steve died or I just don't know if this is already a plan to begin with, but Apple has decided they're going to go ahead and give a quarterly dividend of $2.65 per share starting July 1st um, for their fourth physical quarter of 2012. So they are going to go ahead and pay out a dividend, which is something a lot of people were complaining about. They were saying, look, we're shareholders. We'd like to have some money. But then again, a lot of people said if they didn't pay a dividend, it wouldn't have been that big of a, of a deal. I mean, the stock is like 4 bucks short of being $600. Yeah. So the stock has always been rising. So as long as you make your stockholders money in some way, either by allowing them to get more money, more bang for their buck from the stock that they're going ahead and purchasing, or you go ahead and pay dividends, either way, that person's making money. If I bought a stock a year ago from Apple and it was 500 and now it's 600 mm-hmm. that's, I mean, to me, that's a $100 dividend that was paid to me right there if I can sell it for yeah, bucks. Can, yeah. But they're going to go ahead and do that. But also, they're going to go ahead and buy back $10 billion worth of their stock. So they're going ahead and pulling it back in. Um, the interesting thing about, about the stock buying is a lot of times when people need more money, they'll flood the market with stock. And then when they want to go ahead and have more control over the company, they'll they buy, buy it back. back. And so at this point, Apple feels that they're in a really good position to be able to buy back a, a whole bunch of their stock. So they'll be spending over uh, $45 billion in the next three years to make sure they go ahead and get that that um, pulled back in yep. for everything they're going to be doing. So the dividends as well as the $10 billion in shares will roughly cost them about $45 billion over the next three years, which is a drop in the bucket to the yeah. amount of money that Apple has. Yeah, and I mean, that's just, you know, that's that's what they have right now, and that's mm-hmm. just... It's increasing, increasing, increasing. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are buying more and more and more yeah. Apple products. So well, I mean, everyone worries there. Everyone kept on saying, "No, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure the market's already saturated with the the iPads." But I saw where they said they sold three million of them in three days. Yep. The new ones, yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, they're just going to continue to sell the old ones until they get rid of those. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are going to buy those. They're hundred dollars less, and so yeah, they're going to keep making their money. I mean, they'll so. probably keep on selling those too because. Um, don't they do that now with the with the iPhones? Isn't there an iPhone you can get for free with a contract? Mm, yeah, I think the iPhone four right now. So, so they always say, keep like the one right before. I think so. Yeah, because so probably what will happen is when they do, whenever they do come out with the five, whenever that is, mm-hmm. um, supposedly sometime later this year, they'll probably keep the four S. They'll probably keep the fours slowly slowly fade those out, mm-hmm. and then move the four S eventually down. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're for a while. Well, you know what? I think it might be the 3GS that's free. I think they're still selling the 3GS. And I that think sounds. It's free. That I sounds. I think it's 99 yeah. for the four. So yeah, that, that backtrack that, and it's it's the 3GS. So they'll probably start making the four um, free, and then they'll get rid of the 3GS, which yeah. is which is about right. That's still that makes sense in the phone world mm-hmm. when you have to have a contract. Exactly for the iPads when you don't have to have a contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> okay, so I got a story here about um, Facebook again. Um, lots mm-hmm. of lots of Facebook news, of course. Um, Facebook has apparently bought 750 patents from IBM. Um, it says a news report <laughs> says Facebook has acquired 750 patents from computer systems giant IBM. The news comes shortly after Yahoo sued Facebook for patent infringement over 10 of its software patents. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe they should have bought some patents from Yahoo. Yeah, this is um. 
Compared to other tech companies, Facebook's arsenal of patents is rather meager. The company has just 56 patents compared with thousands, the thousands stockpiled by the likes of Microsoft and Apple. However, the report says Facebook has applied to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for at least 500 more. Apparently, it didn't want to wait for those to be approved and chose to take a shortcut in stocking up its patent portfolio. Um, the lawsuit from Yahoo, which has recently had a wholesale change in management and is expected to announce layoffs, likely provided the motivation. So, um, it says farther down in the article, IBM has been friendly in selling patents to younger tech companies in the past. In January, Google bought 217 patents from IBM, including one for uh, Semantic, Semantic Social Network, um, mm-hmm. and then reps from Facebook. Uh, they're they're declining to comment because again this has just been a leaked thing but it has been they do have enough information to say this is going to be the news when it actually breaks um and that's coming from mashable so that's a you know pretty reliable source there um but other than that there's no new news with the yahoo and facebook um patent suit um i think they're just waiting for their day in court to to come um but that right there says you know there's yahoo starting to announce their layoffs um, so, like we figured, it's about the right time. That's why they figured they'd wait and sue uh, when Facebook decided they were going to start their IPOs. So, hmm. Well, maybe maybe the idea can be some of those patents they bought from IBM can go ahead and be used to get around the stuff that Yahoo's suing them for. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe because the idea is maybe there's those 10 things they need to be able to do, mm-hmm. and IBM had a different way to do them, a different maybe. process. That might be it. And so that would be very, very helpful. Yeah, and I mean, if that's they got 750 <clears throat> patents, and I mean, that's that's a large amount, and Yahoo's suing them over 10. Right. So, I mean, that's that's the desperate, well, sounds like a desperate plea from Yahoo to, for money, too. But, you know, I mean, the timing. In, in the defense of Yahoo, it's possible those 10 patents are, are more widely used. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, in like the photography world, if, if someone decides to use your picture you've taken on the front page of a local newspaper, mm-hmm. you won't get paid much. Mm-hmm. If they put it on the front page of Time Magazine, yeah. which is going to go nationwide, you'll get paid a lot. Yeah. If it's going to go worldwide, you'll get paid even more. So exposure-wise, maybe if those particular APIs are used in a lot of the underlying architecture, maybe. There's, yeah, there's something there. I still think they're grabbing the money, though. Yeah, that's definitely That's definitely what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, um, I saw an article the other day, and I was like, oh, crap. I hope this isn't what I think it is. But it started with Apple loses appeal. And so I was afraid it was more uh, of the the Chinese government iPad infringement stuff. Mm -hmm. But this was a completely different area than I knew about. This is talking about where Apple lost an appeal um, because of their Apple care. And so something I was completely unaware of. I don't even know what it is here in America, so I assume we don't have something. But over in Europe, there's a whole group of countries that are members of the European Union. And so that's people like um, like England and Germany and Switzerland and all these different countries. They have their own little set of laws over there. And one of their laws, which is a really nice law for consumers, but I didn't know about it at all, is that any product that gets sold by default are given two years warranty right out of the box so italy as a company or as a country decided to go ahead and sue apple because apple has a um 
a pretty long track record of for all their iProducts, their iPod, their iPhones, their iPads. They give you one-year warranties, mm-hmm. and if you'd like to have it to be a two-year warranty, you have to go ahead and purchase the Apple Care to go ahead and get that to be done. Okay, That's with their, those products. Even more so, I'm thinking about even when I bought my Mac Pro, I'm pretty sure my Mac Pro only comes with a one-year warranty, but as a computer, if I buy Apple Care, I get a three-year warranty. Of course, okay. it's much more expensive than yes. what my iPad yes. one would cost. So there's a price difference there. Yeah, but the thing of it is, Italy took them to court saying that all of our consumers by default should have a two-year warranty. You've broken the law. You have sold them something that they do not need based on our own laws. Our laws say they should already have out of the box a two-year warranty, and you're making them pay for it. So they fined them $1.2 million for misleading AppleCare customers. And here's the thing. Italy just finished, but Italy is not the only European country in the European Union. Yes. There's a whole lot of more countries who are just (laughs) waiting to line up and sue the crap out of them, too, because they should have made sure that all their consumer products over there were aware that they should be two years. Yeah. So I guess when you sell things in the the global uh, environment, you need to make sure you're aware of all the local laws and regulations. And that's, that's a really cool regulation they have there that makes me wonder... I may go out and research to see if we have anything here. I don't think we do. I, I don't think in America that you're required to give any warranty. I could be wrong, but we got companies like Consumer Reports that test things, and you've got underwriters' laboratories to put stamps on things to say that they're not going to burst into flames within mere seconds. But I don't think otherwise, besides consumer safety, there's ever anything written down saying I don't you get think so. like a, a 90, 90 day warranty, something like that. So. That's very interesting. They're uh, they're very progressive. So I have another one here too. This one's just a little quick note um, for anybody out there who's who's a Microsoft rumor mill person. Microsoft has officially said there's no new Xbox anytime soon. So what this ultimately means is, even though they appreciate all the long interest uh, in their products, wanting to know long term plans. Even though I'm sure they appreciate all kinds of people generating rumors about whether they will or will not lock out used games like we've talked about previously in their new console. They're saying at this point, in 2012, they're completely focusing on the Xbox 360. There will be no announcements made about any new hardware that's going to be talked about at E3 or anytime soon. So at that point, you know, even if they made an announcement in 2013, I really doubt the product would be out in 2013. Because you think about okay. the Xbox Connect, they talked about it at E3 one year, and it wasn't until basically E3 the next year that yeah. it actually came okay. out. So, so we're probably looking at at least two years, I would think, before we ever have a, a new Xbox, at least. Okay. So, that one's out there. Okay, I got one here about the uh, iPad three. It says the the Wall Street Journal is reporting today that that less than a week after being delivered to customers, Verizon iPad 3 users are already getting hit with large overage charges to the tune of $10 per gigabyte. And it says this is a result of Apple's new HD Plus tablet's ability to download data at broadband-like speeds and thus enabling bandwidth-intensive applications such as Netflix, Hulu Plus, and even large app downloads themselves uh, to quickly consume 5, gig- five gigabytes or 10 gigabytes monthly. Uh, taking up those data plans allotment in a matter of days. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, 
I said they tried to some some people were trying to say that they warned people and said you know hey with these new HD technology and whatnot it's going to be bigger downloads it's going to be larger um, data that you're you're downloading and trying to stream mm-hmm. um, and people didn't listen so they're already getting hit with um, apparently pretty high um, um, prices there and it says um, they're calling it sticker shock. LTE customers or sticker mm-hmm. shock at the end of the monthly billing statements. Um, so you might want to check that if you have the new iPad 3. Um, even AT&T users, I mean, but they're talking about Verizon specifically but uh, because of the LTE. Um, but even as an AT&T user um, with 3, 3G supposedly LTE support at some point in the future, um, you better check and make sure that you have um, what, your, what your download and data and stuff like that is, especially if you're oh, wow. out and about all the time. So AT&T, so technically AT&T um, iPad 3s aren't LTE, I guess? Um, hmm. That's the way I'm reading it. Okay. I mean, because I, I did buy one, so I yeah. ended up getting I ended up getting one um, last Friday. And yours is Verizon, correct? Mine's Verizon. Verizon. Yeah, went ahead and got that. I mean, my biggest selling point that I saw on there was eventually we'll have LTE here. They're Mm -hmm. saying in June. But another nice thing is it has the personal hotspot. Yeah. At this point, I use 3G. I don't utilize. I I do a gig. I get a, a my initial gig for twenty bucks, and I've never ever gone over a gig whatsoever. So the idea was, if I'm out and about and someone's with me and they just have a, an iPod Touch, uh-huh. why not allow them to use my my uh, data? Doesn't you cost know? you anything. Yeah, and so that, that works out really well if we go out to dinner or something like that. Friends, family can have something, and I can go ahead and give them a personal hotspot. And I'm still paying 20 bucks a month, whether I use 100 megs or whether I use an entire gig. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that traditionally, I haven't, I haven't tried to download any apps while I've been out and about. It's not like I'm driving down the road and I'm like, holy crap, I need to get this new app right now. Usually I'm at the house or I'm on Wi-Fi most times when I mm-hmm. think about those things. But I do know traditionally on my last iPad, the iPad 2, you were not allowed to download podcasts or applications that are over 20 megs over 3G. Now, I, th- I assumed that was a limitation set in there by Apple, but maybe not because maybe now what you're saying is the possibility. Well, even when you go to the Apple store, you may not be able to download those apps, but something like Netflix, that's streaming. Mm-hmm. You're not getting it all at once. Yep. You're getting it over little tiny pieces. Exactly. And so with that new screen having four times as many pixels, that's four times as high resolution. And I know... Uh, the one thing I've seen is a lot of the updated programs I download, if they were 15 megs previously, there's a possibility they could be 30, 40, maybe 50 megs. Yeah, because the companies like Netflix and Hulu Plus are going to start offering more HD than they currently do. A lot of the stuff they mm-hmm. have right now is standard. So even with the standard version, you're upping it to an HD quality through the uh, the iPad being an mm-hmm. HD screen. And then once they actually make the show or movie HD quality, you're talking about even more, even more uh, data being streamed, right? So. Well, I mean, I just, I don't know. Three G wise, maybe it was just me with three G, but I've heard of people trying to watch stuff on HBO Go and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I just can't imagine trying to watch that type of stuff over three G. If I was going to watch it, I watched it on wireless, and sometimes even wireless felt a little crappy to me watching it. So yeah, I mean, I've been out before and like not. 
not physically like riding in the back of a car or something because mm-hmm. it never really works good then. But I've been out before and pulled up Netflix, and it's not horrible. I was surprised on my on my iPhone. It, it's not horrible, but it's just not the quality for one. The it's it's hard to watch on a screen that small for me, but it's not too bad. But now with these new with the new iPad, you know HD and whatnot, that's that's going to make more things like that possible. And then you know like that report saying. Uh, people's going to be using more data than what they what they even know that they're using very quickly. Well, you know, I think more than that, I think someone's going to realize they're sitting there um, watching Netflix and that's going to take a lot of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. More than that, the one thing that I think people might not immediately think about, which I didn't think about, but I'm still not a fan of the cloud anyway, is iCloud. Uh-huh. I'd seen reports out there where they talked about even with the um, even with your phone, yep. your 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 4s has um, 720p video uh-huh. it can take. If you have iCloud turned on with 720p, if you take a movie clip, mm-hmm. you make a little iMovie, you have iCloud turned on. That clip you've just made gets uploaded online to the to the network to yep. Apple's network. And I know that even just taking hmm, 15 minutes worth of clips. I've already taken up about a gig and a half of space on my iPad. And if that's magically in the background without me even thinking about it being uploaded to my Mac or to the (laughs) iCloud, that right there is a gig and a half or two gigs worth of data I just paid for and didn't even realize it. Exactly. So that would probably be the silent killer. I think that's probably going to get people if they don't think about that. So Especially with all that video that you could be doing. Yep. So... Well, I have one more article here that I want to talk about today before we get to the interview. And the title of this just scares the crap out of me. DOJ, we can force you to decrypt that laptop. Now, I will say it's a very definitive statement up front um, for when you hear the article. But the idea behind it is... The U.S. Justice Department is seeking court order that would require defendant in Colorado mortgage scam case to disclose her passphrase or decrypt the files. So there is a lady in Colorado who's in the middle of of being sued and taken to court for a mortgage scam. And the government wants her to take a laptop that she has that they found when they searched her house with a warrant. They want her to decrypt it so they can check to see if there's any evidence on it. Okay. So, the government's stand is, we don't need your password. We don't want your password. We're not forcing you to give us the password. We just want you to unencrypt this laptop so we can see if there's any damaging evidence on it. Okay. This is going to be a precedent-setting case because this has not actually happened before. Um, There's a lot of things back and forth about this because normally when, when someone has a search warrant, they have to have specifically said what they're wanting to find of yours in a search warrant. Uh, if they come into your house, you know, you like watch those shows like Law and Order. They'll come in and and they'll like go rummaging through your closet and they'll be like, oh, what's this? And they'll find like in TV shows, they'll find like drugs or weed or guns in people's closets. Yeah. Unless they were specifically looking for it, they're only allowed to get things outside the warrant that are plainly visible. Okay. Okay. That's the idea. So so that type of thing you see where they're like rummaging through things, unless unless they knew what they were looking for, they really shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah. 
So what a lot of people are saying here is this almost equates to saying if an agent executed a search warrant and finds a diary written uh, in code, could the target be compelled to decode or decrypt the diary? And so there's a lot of statements back and forth on this whole situation. I mean, you have people saying that basically if you unencrypt your laptop, that's almost like um, causing the end user to give testimony because when they unencrypt it, they're knowingly giving you the information yep. that's on the laptop. You're giving up that information. Yeah, you're just you're just ponying it up. So I originally came upon this article because uh, a student had sent me an article talking about how if you have sensitive information on your computer, you should hide it in um, hidden partitions. Don't hide it on a, on a, an encrypted um, an encrypted partition like a BitLocker. Uh-huh. Don't don't rely on full disk encryption because they had cited this, and I was like, "What's this? I haven't even heard of this." And so at this point, this has not gone yet to the Supreme Court, but I feel sure this will eventually go to the Supreme Court. But yeah, on on both hands, you have law enforcement who are saying, "Look, we just we want to check the information." We don't want to have to spend years trying to decrypt it to find out there's anything, anything on it we, we need. On the other hand, you have people that are like, it's encrypted. She shouldn't have to give you yeah. her password to get into it. Um, I mean, I remember at one point there was, I don't know, there was all this talk about TSA agents at one point. Like, I worried, I worried one year when I was going on a trip, there were TSA agents, or at least the rumors were, that when you would go ahead and check your computer uh-huh. in a bag and you want to take it with you on a plane, yeah. that they'd ask you to turn it on and then they'd ask you to log on to your computer. Uh. And to that, I would be like, wait, first turning it on proves it's not a bomb. Yeah. Logging in is none of your business. Exactly. Because at the time, people were like, what if this is a business laptop? What if they want us to log in and make sure it works? What if the TSA agent starts discovering uh, business documents? Exactly. And, and yeah. so, and so, businesses were really freaking out about stuff like that. As they should. Um, <laughs> and so, I think there was a couple people who had required to have that done and, and been held. But I think for the most part, it was a practice that was quickly frowned upon and, and blown over. This feels a lot like this. This is the fact that they're trying to get her to go ahead and decrypt her laptop um, that was found in her bedroom during a raid on her home. I, my way of thinking is, even though this person's in a mortgage scam, if they've encrypted it, we've got to be able to decrypt it. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing. I I don't feel they should be able to have to compel her to go ahead and put exactly. her password in, because yes, in this case here. There may be information on that, but I think it's a violation of your rights that they're trying to go ahead and hold you up and ask you to go ahead and look at all the information. I know in other countries I've heard before, like in England, I think the rules are a little bit different. In England, I think it's actually a law that they can require you to unencrypt that stuff. But Uh as far as I know, they haven't actually done anything here. But um, that could be... That could be really unsettling, in my opinion, because the whole point of encryption is to protect your company's data. Mm-hmm. And I do know that people go ahead and use it for the, the bad side of the double-edged sword and go ahead and use it to, to encrypt um, illicit materials, mm-hmm. uh, unlawful materials, that type of thing. But ultimately, it's to protect your intellectual properties exactly. of your company. And this just sounds like it's dangerous territory to be able to say that the the government can just 
require you to decrypt it, and you have to follow through. I mean, I, I guess if you don't, you just get to sit in jail forever. It's definitely going to um, um, be a landmark some, case. Yeah, yeah, it's going to make some noise there with with seeing how they how they proceed with it, because that's just I don't understand how they can do that. You know. Yeah, I mean, what? Well, the prosecutors try to say they they equate this person having a PGP passphrase, which PGP is what they use to encrypt the hard drive with. Mm-hmm. They go ahead and associate this with someone possessing a key to a safe filled with incriminating documents, and so in that case, that person can be legally compelled to hand over the key. Okay, but this is a password. Yeah, so. You can't be legally compelled to hand over something that's a it's a an intangible thing. Yeah. So they're just saying, open the safe. Yeah. Or in this case, they're saying, open up the documents so we can go ahead and see it. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It'll be interesting. Originally, originally this this article here came from July eleventh, two thousand eleven. And we know how slow things go in the court system, so we're not even at a year yet for that. So I'm sure that's going to take a while. Yeah. So and and plus the Supreme Court, oftentimes they have so many cases they have to look at. It could take years before it ever goes there. Yeah. You yeah, and uh, and that's time for them to gather evidence for both sides and to get all that figured out. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I mean they they said they're waiting for the Supreme Court to go ahead and confirm whether they're going to even talk about the topic. Uh, a, low, a lot of lower courts have had problems. Uh, in 2010, there was a federal judge in Michigan who ruled that a man by the name of Thomas Kitchener facing charges of receiving child pornography would not give his password. And he said that's protecting his uh, invocation of his Fifth Amendment privilege against compelling say. self-incrimination. Yeah. I was gonna say that's a that's a Fifth Amendment right right there. I mean, not that not that I agree with that case, but I'm just, right. I'm just saying that's. I guess that's kind of what's I happening. guess they're yeah. saying there that like if he unlocks his computer that has child pornography on it, mm-hmm. that's the same way as him going ahead and 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 shouting his self incrimination guilt. I'd, yeah, I'd say probably what they're gonna have to do is they're gonna have to do something to where they can rule that they can go in and and you know decrypt that um, that hard drive themselves. They're gonna have to take it into yeah. possession or something and do it that way because. I don't see how any way possible that that would be. She would be able to do that without it being a violation of her Fifth Amendment rights. But well, you mean, never know, you know. A year before that, there was a Vermont judge who concluded that uh, that a person who was a border guard uh, who had claims of having child pornography on his laptop did not have a Fifth Amendment right yeah. to keep his files encrypted. And that guy eventually put in his password, and he was also yeah. convicted. Yeah. So you you've got these people that are laying down this uh these different remarks and the funny thing yeah, I've been talking to some of our uh legal uh professors here the funny thing is like there's so much that's not written to the law there's there's so few things that are laws on the books so when judges have to make rulings that's why when you see in TV show the lawyers are always saying well in this versus this yeah. in 2010 they they have to make law based off of rules that yeah. were or uh, or court decisions yeah. that were handed down. It's, there's so many laws that can be interpreted differently with how this works. Just like yeah. you know, I mean, so. because because the judges can't make the laws. That's the legislature. So the judges can go ahead and make decisions though about holes that are in the law. So it should be interesting to see what happens here because one case they went ahead and said they had the Fifth Amendment rights. The other case they said they didn't. So, should be very, very interesting. 
But uh, now we have um, a short interview here with Annalisa Johnson, who's one of our adjunct faculty here at MCTC, to talk about some of our more creative classes that we have that are, that are more graphic design oriented. Today I'm sitting here with Annalisa Johnson, one of our uh, adjunct faculty members here at Mount West Community Technical College. Hello, Annalisa. Hi, Patrick. Um, and we're going to talk to her today about the two classes that she teaches for us here, uh, two of the classes that are uh, very foundational when it comes to the animation and game program, as well as the web program. Uh, but first, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Okay. Um, well, I have my BFA, a mm-hmm. Bachelor of Fine Arts from Marsh University with a concentration in graphic design. And I've been working as a graphic designer for the last going on 15 years, mm-hmm. also at Marshall University. And I would say approximately four semesters ago, I began teaching as an adjunct here at Mount West. Um, okay. So the two classes you teach, um, they've been mentioned briefly before this is really uh, our chance to delve deep inside to to be able to talk about what's actually involved in the classes Um, but the first one you teach is our IT 110 class which is computer skills for designers yes and that probably sums it up right there but if you would elaborate and tell us about what programs are involved and what the student gets out of the class okay Uh, yeah that class um, the IT 110 computer skills for designers it's a introductory class that focuses on the Adobe um, Creative Suite. Mm-hmm. Currently, we're on um, CS5. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just started that this semester, okay. I believe. And we are focusing on um, the main five programs, okay. which would be um, Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, InDesign, Dreamweaver and Flash. Okay, so basically, um, the the CS Design Premium Suite. Yes, because because there's a lot of different ones that they have out there. Correct. The Master Collection has a ton, but we're focusing on mainly the design aspect. Right. Okay. So um, tell us about with those programs. Um, explain to the audience out there what some of the students might do or some of the hands-on they get with, let's say, Photoshop or, or Dreamweaver or Flash, those type of things. Okay. Um, really, um, my approach to the class is to, we do have a textbook that we mm-hmm. use that gives some like in-class practice uh, where we go over each program. So, for instance, right now we are working, we just started InDesign. So tonight, I do an introductory about what InDesign is, which it is a layout program um, for professional Yeah, they could be for newsletters, catalogs, any type of magazine spread you expect, you'd probably expect it to be in there. Right. So tonight, we kind of did an introduction to that, Mm -hmm. and then we worked through the first lesson of the book. So that will give the students hands-on experience and... A lecture environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're working with the program, and I'm explaining and giving them more detail about it. Once we go through the in-class type practice, then I like to give a additional assignment 
uh, I call it like a main project, which mm-hmm. will allow the student to use the skills that they learned mm-hmm. during the in-class or the book practice and apply it to a project where they get to actually <clears throat> use some of their creativity or apply some of their interest to it. So tonight we finished the in-class lesson, which mm-hmm. had them working with text and, and photographs and placing them. And we discussed their main project, which is going to be a mini magazine about themselves. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to be working with Photoshop Mm -hmm. um, to work on images that they bring in. And we're going to be using um, InDesign to place the text and create mini magazines. Um, Okay. At this point, you've already covered Photoshop uh, introductory in that class, correct? Yes, yes. So Um, you're able to build on to the applications. Correct. So, okay, like if I went back to the beginning of the semester, we Mm -hmm. started with Illustrator. Okay. Which is a vector-based program Mm -hmm. that usually is used for creating graphics. Mm -hmm. um, And when you say say graphics, we're not thinking about digital pictures, that type of thing. Um, We're talking, or I'm talking about... um, like digital illustrations or say logo designs, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, this program would be used to create digital images from scratch. Vector meaning it's uh, some sort of mathematical calculation yes, with a vector image. It can it can be blown up the size of the moon or it can be as small as a postage stamp. Right. It gives you crisp, sharp lines. You don't have to r- worry about resolution. Mm-hmm. Which the next program we went to was Photoshop, okay. which in contrast works with bitmap or raster images, mm-hmm. which are built up you know, of pixels, and you really have to pay attention to the resolution of the files you're working with. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start them with the two different types of programs, right. you know, vector and bitmap. Mm-hmm. And then now that we're in InDesign, which is a program that you pretty much you bring in graphics from other programs Mm -hmm. and create your layout so we are now using InDesign for that okay and if people out there may not be familiar with InDesign they may have heard of its predecessor Mm, PageMaker yeah Yeah, Atlas PageMaker I believe yeah I mean Photoshop has been around a long time as has Illustrator but InDesign had a name change probably about six or seven years ago. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we're on five now. So mm-hmm. actually, they have five point five. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, and hopefully, depending on how this goes, we're going to be setting this document up with the intent of printing. Mm-hmm. Because in this in this class, I do talk about print, mm-hmm. um, and I also talk about web since the class is a foundation for the web option. Mm-hmm. Um, so my ultimate goal with this project is once they get their print layout done, we are going to add interactivity within their document straight in InDesign. You can do animation, simple animations, um, and even place video. And so that would be, I think, a great step to our next program, which Mm -hmm. is going to be Flash. Mm -hmm. And that program will deal with animations, um, which I know you use heavily in the gaming option. Mm -hmm. That's true. And then finally, the last program we're going to focus on is Dreamweaver, which is the uh, program for web design and web applications when you get into the advanced stuff, um, which is also used uh, later on in the web option. Yeah. So the nice thing is it at least gives students an introductory to those programs so that before they get thrown from the frying pan into the fire into into a class that's going to be 
16 straight weeks of Dreamweaver or something like that, they can at least have some experience. So when they get in that class, they have a better understanding. Now, you mentioned you were you were doing this class also um, in the InDesign side for print. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, you're also taking a lot of um, of design principles. I mean, whereas a lot of our other classes are very technical in nature, you're trying to go ahead and, and sprinkle in a lot of the design aspects so that when these people are going through the gaming program, when they're going through the web program, they at least are going to be more um, contemplative about why they're doing what they're doing. Not not just here's a button, click it, make something. What color am I going to make it? Why am I going to make it, it that exactly. color? Exactly. Because, I mean, yes, uh, I want them to be able to use the programs and have technical skills. But if you have a web page, for example, and it works, that's great. But if it is not attractive or it's not designed well, uh, that can be, you know, detrimental to the overall it may project. be It may be functional, but no one's going to want to go use it or exactly. look at it or stay there. Exactly. So, yeah, I do try to... Um, at least introduce them to some basic design principles and elements, um, which we talked about again tonight, because hopefully they'll be applying them to their um, next project. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it is important to have at least a working knowledge of design aspects, because, you know, ultimately, you know, you want to have technical skill, but you want to be able to be, um, you know, attractive to your client. Mm -hmm. You want to actually be able to accomplish and convey what the client wants to convey right and when when the client says i want a web page well most technical people can do that Mm -hmm. when a client says i want a web page that conveys professionalism that's not as easy as to just shove in the computer some input that says i want a professional website to come out right why is it professional exactly and even if i mean some um you may not have to deal with heavy design issues but basic issues um say for web especially what color is your background versus the text you're using on top of it those simple things uh, are important for readability just Mm -hmm. just to be able to see it so even if you're not going to get too deep into designing you do want to be aware of those type of issues okay so the the 110 class we currently have uh as a class people take the first semester in both the web option and the animation and game option. Right. Um, and, of course, you know, people could be more than welcome to come and take the class as an elective, but those are definitely used for those as foundations to build on because, as you said, they get a little bit of flash inside of, of your class. That'll help when they go ahead and start continuing on in the gaming classes and, and move into the flash classes. Mm-hmm. They get a little bit of... Um, of Dreamweaver, which is going to help when they move into Kim Priest's classes, who we, we talked to previously. And um, they get the illustration right now and, and the, the uh, InDesign portion, which we don't have a class for, per se, as an entire class. But uh, previously, I talked to uh, Rhonda Scragg about our internship program, and I talked on that about how we have our gaming students take her class one one hour uh, per semester and I'm expecting them at the end to come up with, with some sort of electronic portfolio and so an option for them would be to do what you're having them do use the skills they've learned in design to be able to make some sort of document they can convey uh, as an electronic portfolio exactly because my whole idea was it's going to be pretty hard on paper for them to show a potential employer any animation 
Right. And so they needed something to do that with. So your class does allow them to see one avenue they could go. Oh, yes. And, and I actually mentioned that tonight, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that this would be an option because I showed um, an example of a document that I created for print. And then I showed them the next step, which was adding an interactivity, you know, an image gallery, a video clip. And I let them know that this would be a possibility for that portfolio, Mm -hmm. that you could put clips from your game or, you know, actually show a progress. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, another option could also be for the student if they wanted to make some sort of website, they could do that Mm -hmm. as well. But your introductory class starts them down that road. And uh, Kim definitely completes that for them if they go through the web option. Now, your second class is also tied very heavily into both the gaming and the uh, and the web option, which is IT213. Uh, it's a course that's based heavily on Photoshop. It's currently called Web Graphics Design. Mm-hmm. And from the title, you would think that the class is going to be totally about making some sort of graphics for your web pages. Um, but we've also thrown in the area of design that could be also helpful maybe for the for the gaming students. So I know you touch on Photoshop, and you've mentioned you touch on Photoshop on the 110. Um, if you would talk about how you further expand upon Photoshop in the 213 class. Okay. Um, but, yeah, in um, IT213, we do focus entirely uh, on Photoshop. And... We discuss how to create graphics for mm-hmm. web pages, mm-hmm. um, how I, you need to size them, you yeah, know, proper I think sizing. You mentioned, the, um, you mentioned earlier making sure students knew how to print yes. and how to, how to make something for print. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel sure you probably cover image resolution to make sure students understand what 300 DPI means mm-hmm. or what 72 DPI means for the web. Oh, yes, because really, you know, sometimes you will have a situation where you're going to create something that will be printed, Mm -hmm. but that, say, your client or the business you're working for also wants to put that image on their website. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, when you're working with websites, you do not need as much resolution in your files. True. And so we we do go over how to resize images so they will be appropriate, you know, for fast download um, since web is only going to be viewed on the monitor, your mm-hmm. monitor only needs 72 uh, pixels per inch. They don't need to. De- they don't need to upload a three meg oh, gosh, banner no. file to put over top of uh, of the website. No mm. one's going to want to sit around and wait for that to happen. Exactly. So we cover things like that, like mm-hmm. proper image resolution, mm-hmm. um, and how to, you know, create composites, create mm-hmm. images and graphics that you would use mm-hmm. for uh, websites. And even, like, say, in your gaming class, if you want to be able to have, say, a background or, you know, a more realistic background, um, you would be able to create your documents within Photoshop and then import them into Flash. Okay. So, yeah. Do you cover any um, image manipulation? I mean, more, I know you said compositing, but that I would, when I think of compositing, I think of more like uh, I took a picture of someone against a green screen, and so I'm going to make them look like they're in space. Right. So do you do anything more um, heavily than that where, like, I switch two people's heads or um, someone has a cut on their face, and so we we find a way to get that off the face? Yeah, we do cover that. Um, Basic, like, photo retouching. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, now, of course, we don't get too involved because that's a whole other section of Photoshop that True. you can have a class on. Um, but, yeah, we cover how to, you know, healing brush, cloning stamp, how you can make your photos look better. Um, because sometimes you don't need a manipulated photo. You might just want a, you know, color-corrected image. Or, or shoring up your level, something like that. Right, right. And so we cover the basic stuff like that also. But it's just a more in-depth class um, to give the students more time to work in Photoshop, expand their skills. Great. Well, I, I just knew that these were... Um the classes that I thought have a lot of interest in our two degrees, uh, I wanted to be able to bring you in, talk to the expert who actually teaches the class about what gets done in the class, and, and talk amongst um, with you about the, the different options they have. Because I think that for our students leaving, uh, getting, a getting a degree in web development and then getting a job someplace, or even our gaming students who want to go on and pursue a career in animation or in gaming, they're going to need the skills that, that you're teaching in those classes because um, I've, I've heard outside of here horror stories about, about people who know the technical side, but they don't know the design side. And those two particular degrees are very design-based as well. I mean, my networking, you don't design an elegant network necessarily, but you do have to design an elegant-looking website and it's all in the eye of the beholder and people need to realize how to please their clients there mm -hmm. whereas the way my students would have to go ahead on a network and and please a client is to have the machines come up that's kind of a does it come up or does it not yours is more of an aesthetic that has to be done right and so yeah i i like to try to make sure i reinforce or at least introduce mm -hmm. some of the design principles especially since that's what i do you know during the day all day um, that's what I'm dealing with. So mm -hmm. it's knowledge that I think would be useful. And I think at least being exposed to the design suite will be useful. Even if you don't ever open up Illustrator again, mm -hmm. at least having the knowledge of it could be beneficial um, once you're out in the workplace. I also think that you're in a unique position in the fact that since you are in that almost retail-like standpoint where you have clients who bring things in, mm -hmm. you you know the pitfalls, you know, oh, yes. you know about the horrendous stories of what clients may bring you, what they may think passes for photographs they want to put in a, in a printed catalog when you know that they're the size of a postage stamp and oh, if you yes. blow them up, they're going to be all pixelated. So this can be things that you definitely instill in the students not to do so they can avoid those pitfalls. Yes, at least just best practices. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important, I think, because I was, you know, I feel like at the least, once you graduate, you should be able to at least tell people, you know, you know, that's not really necessary mm -hmm. or this would be a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, yes, very important, I think. Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us and um I hope the audience out there enjoyed it. Thanks. So I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Annalisa Johnson. Um, she's currently an adjunct, but Josh and I were adjuncts, so hopefully eventually she could become a full-time professor at some point. We try to go ahead and, and train him right and bring him on in. So that's all we're going to have for you all this week. As usual, I want to remind you that if you'd like to leave any comments for us, you're more than welcome to go ahead and place them on our Twitter page, which is TalkOnTechMCTC. We welcome any comments or any suggestions for news stories you'd like us to talk about. But for this week, I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Everyone have a great week.